I must be an X-Men legend because the book is the book called is called X-Men, X-Men Legends. Right. Did you see what I did there? Right, exactly. It could have been called X-Men has been. <laughs> it would have been great. <laughs> I would have loved it. I would have jumped on board. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Fabian Nicieza, legendary X-Men writer of the 90s, architect of so many iconic stories in that early 90s period, and currently the writer of the first arc on X-Men Legends, which revisits some of the events of his tenure on the book. Fabian, thank you so much for joining me. This is a real thrill. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me, Connor. Thank you again for being here. You know, I've said this on the podcast before, but when I was a tween on UncannyXMen.net, 20 years ago, my username on the forums was Revanche. So you've been influencing me since I was very small, not to make you feel old. You were a dumb kid, is what you I was a very gay kid, is what I'll say. Listen, I'm a huge Betsy Braddock fan, and my dad is a collector. So I had read the 80s stuff first before I was reading the stuff that was coming out currently when I was a kid in the 90s. So I loved Psylocke in her original form. What was it about her that appealed to you at such a young age? I liked that she wasn't as capable of fighting as the other characters. I liked that she was smart. I thought she was pretty and the design was cool. I loved the Outback armor that she wore to compensate for her lack of defensive powers. I liked that she wasn't telekinetic and that she was just telepathic, so she had to be clever about it. In the modern stories, I really love Emma who I think is a similar sort of character, although they gave her defensive capability. But, you know, they've given Betsy that too at this point. The ninja Betsy of the 90s, who obviously was much more popular to most people, was just not as much my speed. I liked her, but not as much. And so when Revanche turned up, it was so exciting, right? Because what's going on? It's it's my Psylocke, but it was... It was was meant to be exciting, (laughs) but it very quickly spiraled into the toilet. Well, we can get into that a little later. It was exciting in the same way that a car crash is exciting. Well, I'll tell you, however it maybe fell apart a little bit in that period, it ended up being one of the most significant and positive retcons in the history of the X-Men because now, in the current stories, Kanon is back as a character and is... I think one of the most captivating characters in the line right now. I I heard I heard some people talking that she's in the current books. I I don't I read stuff, but sporadically, mm-hmm. usually well after it's come out because I read it uh, digital and trade paperback form. So I have no idea what's happening in the last year. So they swapped her and Betsy back, and Betsy is Captain Britain now. That that I knew. I knew about Betsy being Captain Britain. Right, and Canon is Psylocke. She's wearing the Jim Lee outfit and she is 
sort of the Rick flag for the Hellion squad, which is like a suicide squad type team. And she's keeping them in line for Cyclops. Okay. It's really fun. Zeb Wells is writing it. He's great. And she's just become a really fascinating character very quickly. And as someone who liked her in the 90s, despite how messy the storyline was, it's nice to have both of them. So I think that we're all grateful, even if the story didn't go necessarily how you What you're enjoying right now is exactly what I planned 25 years ago. There you go. I'm going to give you all the credit. (laughs) Absolutely. But we are here today to talk about Adam Naramani, Adam X, the Xtreme, the subject of your current arc on X-Men Legends, which is finally putting back together the story that you planned out back in 93, I want to say. Yeah, it was was planned as a... It was planned as a slow intro leading to a miniseries. The miniseries was originally planned for 95 and just never, never happened. The 93 issue I'm thinking of is just the one where Sinister blindsides Scott with the idea that he has maybe brothers, plural even, that he doesn't know about beyond Alex. Yeah. That was clearly the setup and then it sort of evolved from there. Before we dive into Adam and what you're doing right now and what you had wanted to do then, I would love to hear a little bit about how you came to the X-Men, how you grew to love these characters, what it was like for you to become the writer on these characters at the height of their popularity, all of that. So if you want to take it away with your origin story, as it were, I bet a lot of people would be interested. Well... I became familiar with the X-Men in the late 60s when they guest starred in other books. Uh, mm-hmm. I saw I saw their books on the rack, but it never appealed to me the same way that like Spider-Man or Fantastic Four and then Avengers did. Uh, Avengers was my like steady. Um, I think I became the most aware of them actually when they guest starred in like a two-part story in, in Avengers that Magneto was a part of. Yeah. And, and I got an opportunity through a flea market in my area to find some back issues in, in, in old boxes. Um, so I ended up getting maybe 10 to 10 to 14 back issues of the X-Men, uh, like issue, issue 18, issue 19, issue 20, issue 34 and 35. Um, and one of my greatest finds in my life to this day, um, the debut of Havoc uh, with that fantastic Neil Adams cover. Great issue. Uh, I got that. It's got a big purple um, stain along the top. Somebody (laughs) must have marked it. Um, But I got it at that flea market, and I still have the issue to this day downstairs in the basement. Um, So so I became familiar with them um, at at that time through through sporadic sort of um, interest. They were not a popular book. Uh, They were not necessarily considered fun or cool characters. They they ultimately didn't even have a monthly book. It was just a reprint run at that time. So so guest starring is all you really saw. But I ended up getting a lot of their guest starring appearances just just off the racks out of curiosity. I don't know why. Uh, I got a, a couple a Marvel team up issue, a Marvel team up number four where they appeared. Mm-hmm. It was some great Gil, Gil Kane artwork. Um, I got a Hulk issue that Havoc guest starred in. Because, the one where Havoc and Polaris, yeah. yeah, yeah, because I loved Havoc's costume, so I saw that and I got it. So uh, I got a Juggernaut issue and a flea, the flea market also that had half the cover torn off. It was Juggernaut Beast. I'm sorry, the the, the Amazing Adventures Beast issue, where right. Juggernaut was in it. So all of a sudden, somewhere in the back of my head. There must have been something percolating that, that these were interesting losers, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I've always had an affinity for interesting losers. <laughs> Hawkeye, Hawkeye was my favorite Avenger. Right. No wonder you like Havoc. He's sort of the X-Men's Hawkeye a little bit. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I 
I, and to this day, the minute I walked into the, the newsstand and saw Giant Size X-Men number one on the spinner rack, I was intrigued to see they were coming back with it because I could tell right off the bat from the cover without even opening it up. I could tell right off the bat from the cover that it was a new story. New. Yeah. It was not a reprint because that's all that they had of X-Men before that was reprints for the last several years. Mm -hmm. So I picked it up and I opened it up. And the second I saw Dave Cockrum's artwork, that was it because I loved Dave Cockrum. I was about 13, 14 years old. I'd read him on Legion of Superheroes. I loved the stuff he had been doing on Avengers sporadically either inking or in the case of my, one of my favorite comics of all time is giant size Avengers number two, which uh, Cockrum penciled and inked. So when I saw he drew giant size X-Men, that was it. I got it. That, and and I, I wasn't going to stop getting it if he was drawing it. And so I kept getting it. Um, <laughs> I even I even bought Giant Size X Men number two, not realizing it was going to be a reprint issue. Oh my god, yeah! But but it was still one of the greatest reprint issues in the in the history of comics because it was the Neil Adams, Roy Thomas, Sentinel stuff. Yeah, which is incredible. Yeah, so I ended up filling out that that storyline as well through that reprint. So when Uncanny X Men started with ninety four, I just bought it off the off the spinner rack, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Every two months, I was buying X Men and. It just kept getting better and better. Chris took over uh, after the first issue or two. Um, I think he might have even been scripting it uh, from the beginning. He scripted the first two and then took over fully gotcha, in the third Glenn, one. Glenn plotted the first mm-hmm. two issues as if that was going to be Giant Size X-Men number two, I think. Right. And Chris was doing some really, really interesting things. And, and you could just tell that here is a young writer with a, a lot to prove. And here is a, a, a young but established artist who gets to make a mark on a book. Mm-hmm. So so that was it. By the time issue 100 rolled around, it was one of my favorite books. It was better than Avengers, even though Avengers was my steady go-to. And then once John Byrne came along and, and his speed enabled the book to go monthly, clearly that just cemented yeah. the, the, the book's popularity with fans. I think having a monthly release makes a big difference back then. You don't even, you guys don't even know what bi-monthly books are anymore. I was around. <laughs> All you know is late shipping books. But, so buying... I was around for for the foil cover era when a couple things still double shipped. Very little was bi-monthly by then. <laughs> Usually a, a book wasn't bi-monthly unless it was about to be canceled. That's but true. Back, back in the old days, bi-monthly was a lot of times not just a sign of a, a low seller. With X-Men, it was the top book in the whole line. Yeah. Not not when it was bi-month. It didn't become the top book in the line for, for quite a bit into Burns Run. Right, but wasn't it double shipped in like the late '80s when it was on top? Oh yeah, yeah, we're talking about we're talking right. About yeah, no, sorry, later, I'm thinking yeah. about it. Right. Yeah, I'm talking about '77, '78. <laughs> um, yeah, the the book was Marvel had a lot of books that were double shipping in the summer back then because the, it, it was a summertime was when we sold more comics because mm-hmm. kids were out of school and back then kids were still reading comics. Yeah, that makes sense. And a lot of them were still getting them on the newsstand, so we double shipped at least six titles a year uh, in the late '80s. Um, we were doing that, so. I, I just read it every month. That's all there is to it. I mean, yeah. I read it every month. But but it, after after Byrne left and Cockrum came back, I, I wasn't enjoying it that much. Uh, it, Dave's art wasn't the same anymore. And I wasn't enjoying the storyline. So there, I stopped reading it at a certain point. And then I saw Paul Smith's artwork on it. So I started picking it up mm-hmm. again. And, and Chris was great with Paul Smith. Incredible. And then JR took over. And, and I read that for another year. And then I stopped reading it again. So there were lots of times where where the book lost me i i think it's chris's run is an incredible testament 
just from a durability standpoint, but obviously from a storytelling standpoint, but there were plenty of things he did that just lost me as a reader. Um, so it, it was never like I thought it was always excellent. It was never like I always thought it was the best. You know what I mean? Right. And by the time I started working at Marvel, that was before Jim Lee even started drawing it. I was already working at Marvel in, in 85. It was the number one book. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I started I was my, my I, I started in Marvel in oh, summer of 85. I became the advertising manager by 86. And that was my day job at Marvel. Huh? Mm. My job was to sell our books in our books. <laughs> and, and a comic book shop. So all the house ads you saw in the late 80s, all the promotional posters, all of that stuff was my job. That's what I did, including the the, the X-Men promotions. So, you know, the triptych poster for Inferno. I love that one. The mutant registration out ad was my ad. Um, Incredible. Do you, do you know what do you know what your children with Franklin is? and the yeah, yeah. yeah that was that was me of I, course I, now that's you know but it was at the it time was actually, it was it was one of my favorite ads I ever did it's one of the best it's really really evocative we got 50 letters of complaint I counted them um, 50 <laughs> letters of complaint were sent into the company about that ad which I thought was fantastic so I thought I did my job right so that was really what I was doing so I never necessarily had an interest in writing the X-Men at that time mostly because we never thought Chris wouldn't be writing the X, you know? Right. But, but I was selling backup stories here and there. I did a couple issues of classic X-Men backups. My goal, my hope was to write Avengers, quite honestly. That was what I really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But as there was attrition happening in the books, that was also the exact time as my kind of my writing star was ascending a little bit. And I was doing a work for Bob Harris, the editor on annuals and things like that. So it was never actually me pitching or me asking to write the book. And it honestly wasn't ever even the editor offering me the book. Uh, it just sort of happened, you know? What I remember from Sean Howe's oral history of Marvel was, and, you know, this might not be 100% accurate, but that Liefeld was- It might not be. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me guarantee you, it's, I'll guarantee you 100% that it's not 100% accurate. <laughs> yeah, but that Liefeld had been a fan of your New Universe book and that he suggested you to Harris when Wheezy left New Mutants. Well, Rob, Rob and I had talked a lot about a bunch of stuff since I was writing Cyforce because he was- friendly with Ron Lim from the convention circuit mm -hmm. and Ron Lim was drawing Cyforce. So I was talking to Rob before even Hawk and Dove had come out at DC. Right. So I, I think that there were two or three candidates potentially to script new mutants. And then they ended up asking me. And part of that was because I got along with Rob. The main reason I really did it is because I was already writing two books a month with a full-time job. That was a very solid load for me. But quite frankly, scripting off of somebody else's plots is usually easier work. Right. And I also knew that it was going to sell really well. I just knew how well it was going to sell. So I thought, okay, let me make a few, a few royalty checks off of this <laughs> baby. And then whenever they do whatever they do, maybe I'm only going to script it for a few issues. I didn't know. But I knew the book was coming to an end with 100, and I knew X-Source was going to launch then I ended up becoming more ensconced in the X office as a result of all that. Right. As a result of the book launching, as a result of Chris leaving the books and everyone knowing that Burns' time on them was probably going to be limited. Mm -hmm. It just sort of, in essence, I, I was just sort of there. And as a result of just sort of being there, 
I just continued to get more work in that office. But even when I started writing the book with issue 12, I wasn't officially formally offered the book. It was <laughs> those two issues were supposed to be inventory stories that we were doing to get caught up on the schedule, not knowing when or if Jim was still going to leave for image. Right. Artie Bear and I were doing those two issues. Tumultuous time. Yeah, very much so. And then when Jim and Rob and Wills finally left, because they kind of dragged that out for almost a year, um, when they finally left was when we had to really hit the ground running fast because we were already really late for the already planned in the budget crossover, <laughs> which had no story to it because... Jim and, and Wilson <laughs> Rob hadn't come up with a story for it. So we had to come up with Executioner's That's song. That's Executioner's really, song. Really quickly. Yeah. So I did I did the outline for the entire thing in less than a week. Wow. I submitted it. Everybody then started to put their fingers in it, uh, which was good. Uh, we made it better, I think, because I I I put I put more in there than it needed to have in it. So we kind of and it had plenty already. So we kind of had an editorial retreat with all the new creative people there for the first time together. So Scott and me and Peter and Larry uh, Hama and Peter David, and then all the artists as well um, who are going to be taking over. Uh, that was our first X meeting post image evacuation. Mm -hmm. And and we just hit the ground running. That's all we just, we had work to do. Um, for me, it was less enthusiasm or excitement about writing the X-Men because part of me really thought, that was as much burden as anything else. It was, it was because I was a company man. I was young and stupid. I was a company man. I wanted to do right by the company. And for us to do right by the company meant continuing to make these books as viable as they had been, or more so to continue to sell the living daylights out of these books. That would have proven the characters matter more than the creative people do. Than Chris did, right. And, yeah. and I and I include myself in that because the books <laughs> continued to sell after Chris left and the books continued to sell after Jim Lee left. My goal was to keep that engine running for the sake of the company as much as anything else. So I never, from the very beginning, never really tackled the X-Men job with the with anything close to the same level of enthusiasm that I had for writing something like New Warriors or Nomad, right. which was me me in my own little corner getting to do a lot of what I wanted to do with simpatico editors, not in a writing group where there's a lot of crap going on yeah. behind your back. Well, this is not a New Warriors podcast, but I did read that as it was coming out as a kid also, and I really loved Silhouette who I would love to see pop up now on Krakoa. She is a mutant, right? So, uh, yeah, she's a tough one. She's not really technically a mutant because she's born of, of magical energies and hybrid, hybrid, hybrid magical energies. If Ilyana Rasputin is a mutant, I feel like Silhouette could yeah, be a mutant. Yeah, I don't think Ilyana <laughs> should be a mutant, but that's besides the point. I, I honestly don't think of Silhouette as a mutant, but I'd like to see her used more often anyway, just because she's a really freaking cool yeah, character. Yeah, I'm like, throw her in the X-Book. She's a cool character. There aren't that many mixed-race black and Asian characters. Quite frankly, Connor, I think you guys got more than enough characters on Krakoa already. Probably, but if no one's using her, I'm just saying, I liked her. I thought I've, she was I've fun. I've had to pay a little bit of attention lately just because of things I've been working on, like Jogger and stuff like that and and there's a lot of characters there already <laughs> mm, no that's certainly true 
But I would have loved to see her turn up in Juggernaut. I would love to see her turn up wherever. I just always thought she was great. And the the way she fought with the crutches was very unique as a way to, you know, in terms of fights on the comics page. It always felt yeah, different. Yeah, I thought Mark Bagley and Derek did Beautiful a great stuff. job handling yeah. that stuff visually, yeah. But it, be careful, because I'll spin this off into a new Yeah, Warriors no, I'm stopping us right there before we get... Two right. seconds <laughs> flat, man. <laughs> But Nomad is an interesting case also because I know that you wanted to do an HIV storyline in Nomad and they wouldn't let you do it. I got to do the HIV storyline. But you wanted him to... What I wasn't allowed to do is to have, have Jack Monroe have HIV. Right. Um, that that they didn't let me do. Uh, it became became quite a big stink internally because it was one of the first times that external forces in the company made editorial decisions for us mm -hmm. uh, based on their fear of how this would negatively impact the stock. So like it was a corporate concern. It was not internal at all. To the credit of the people I worked with, I had the support of my editor, my editor-in-chief, my publisher, and the president of my company mm. all supported this to do this. And it was external to, to Marvel meaning McAndrews and Forbes, meaning scumbag billionaire Ron Perlman right. and his scumbag right-hand man, Bill Bevins, who were the ones who said no. And it was with Bill Bevins that I had the meeting where I had to explain to him why he was wrong about mm -hmm. the decision he was making. And he wasn't going to budge, even though he was absolutely wrong. It would have been an historic story. It would have been an historic story in a, at a very important time. Yeah. And it was exactly the kind of stories that Marvel had done in the past. But the second that I wasn't allowed to do that, quite honestly, was the point where already frayed strings of my attachment to the company mm -hmm. uh, were severed. And, and after the second I left that meeting, I looked at my, my bosses and my friends and I said to them, you just lost me. That was it. You just lost me. I said to them. I mean, that makes sense. And I was gone six months later from my staff job. Um, I continued to write, but I was gone from my staff job six months later. Was the fact that you weren't able to do that storyline something that influenced the Legacy Virus plot in the X-Men? Or was that separate? No, no, no. Legacy Virus was already happening. It was separate. Legacy Virus was an, an analogous right. to, to HIV, but it was done in a very safe metaphorical Indeed. way right Indeed. yeah metaphorical way and i want nomad wasn't that kind of book i was wondering if maybe that was how you managed to get no, it no, through no. yeah no no not at all i didn't get to i didn't manage to get it through. the book was <laughs> the the book i was gonna quit nomad and my editor glenn hurdling was also my friend asked me to stay because there's probably going to be canceled with 25 so mm -hmm. i was going to quit nomad with like issue 15 or 16 and he asked me to stay until the end of the book so i stayed until the end of the book because he asked me to but the second i wasn't allowed to do that story after i'd already been on entertainment tonight for doing an la riot story it made it made no sense yeah. there's no logic to the decision at all they were wrong but it, it, it you it goes to show you how much fear and uncertainty and misinformation there was at that time about hiv and aids yeah absolutely and we're already talking about 92 93 now we're not talking about 87 88 right and yet there was still that perception back then yeah among Caucasian boardroom asswipes, right. there was still that mentality. The Caucasian element is interesting, too. I mean, you must have been one of the only South American people, but also yeah, just but generally. I, I, I am. I am. 
I'm very I'm tan when it suits my purposes, <laughs> but but I, I am Caucasian because my my aunts, my grandparents come from Spain. Oh, gotcha. Okay, and came to Argentina in the late 1800s and stuff like that. So it was not you didn't find it an obstacle at all. I n- you know what? I no no not at all. My name and my nationality uh, has never ever once since I got into the working world been any kind of a hindrance i'm very fortunate in that regard any aspects of that in my life really date back to childhood Mm -hmm. and and elementary school years more than anything growing up i lived in apartments so the friends who lived in houses their parents were a little what is he what is that what kind (laughs) of name is that you know well and the fact that you didn't change your name to write i mean there is such a long history i'm jewish and there's a very long history in comics of from the very beginning of changing jewish names to sound more anglo and and things like that i gotta be honest with you i never once thought about it i never i love that though i really love i honestly love that it didn't occur to my name is an is impossible to pronounce it's a hindrance to casual conversation with people (laughs) but by the other side of the coin it's pretty easy to remember yeah even if you can't pronounce it you remember it you know it certainly was memorable to me as a child i would recognize it on the covers i'd be like oh it's that guy again because it's a distinctive name and that happened a lot to me i got that a lot i got i got people who knew me just as much because of my name as anything else Mm -hmm. um in the comic in the comic field you know yeah so so uh, you know it it is it is what it is i just working on working on my novel which is coming out in a few months congrats on that that's very exciting thank you that actually brought out a lot more of that whole immigrant nature white caucasian am i tan or am i caucasian sort of thing right (laughs) writing the book because of the book's themes really brought a lot more of that out of me than almost anything i ever had to experience in comic books well that's good to hear i mean it's always good to hear that someone didn't have a you know you know i've been here since i was four years old right it's different like i'm from new jersey and new york because i am from new jersey and new york you know what i mean yeah 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 it's not like I came here when I was 18 or something. I don't have an accent. I don't, but my parents did, you know, my parents had really heavy accents and, and I could speak with them fluent Spanish anytime I wanted to, but then I would turn around and talk like this. Yeah. I had a friend in high school who was Polish and she talked like Britney Spears and then her mom would call and she would pick up the phone and start talking in perfect <laughs> Polish. And we would all just kind of look at her like, whoa, because yeah. it, it sounds, especially if you're not familiar with, I mean, I I was around Spanish speaking people growing up. Polish was like, could have been Martian to me. I was just sort of like, what is that? It was cool though. And it was impressive that then she would put it down and start talking like Britney Spears again. I'm very bad at languages. So that always impresses me. Yeah. And anytime I talk Spanish, anytime I talk Spanish around my coworkers, it always threw them for a loop because they weren't ready for it because they would never hear me <laughs> right. talk Spanish. So it, it happened occasionally in the office when an, ar- an artist who was predominantly Spanish speaking would come in, I'd be able to, yeah. to talk to them. Uh, it happened when we would go out to conventions or things like that depending on where we were going it, it helped us a few times when we made some trips from san diego down to tijuana for dinner sure it helped us in those instances dinner. as well so <laughs> dinner yes <laughs> dinner some excellent food down there let me tell you <laughs> so i've heard yes <laughs> so you left after the nomad thing and that led to yeah i left i left staff it was a point where i was i was quitting a lot i quit a lot and boy i went from writing six books a month with a full-time job 
to writing one book a month with no full-time job. <laughs> um, that, that was between, between by, by 95, I was down to one monthly book, which was Captain Marvel. Right. And that's where Adam X's story kind of concludes in terms of you writing it. I, I think I just got burnt out. I, I'd been there for 10 years. I, I, I worked seven days a week, every week of the year. I, I was writing a lot. I was commuting into the city. I had a, a staff job that, ha- that had a lot of responsibility, either advertising manager or when I became an editor. I was editing licensed books, which meant I had to deal with a tremendous amount of external businesses uh, for the licensed books. I'm a literary agent, so I get it. Are you? <laughs> That's my day job. So I was doing Marvel's presentations at distributor meetings and licensing shows and trade shows because I could stand on a stage with a microphone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was co-hosting panels with Mark Grunwald, the conventions, all of it. So I, I just think I did, I honestly did maybe 20 years of work, not 20, let's say 10 years worth of work in about a five-year span between 89 and 94. And I just was burnt out. I, yeah. I was really burnt out. So Bob fired me off X-Force. I quit Cable. And then I quit X-Men less than a year later. Mm-hmm. And I quit Night Thresher and Nova. And then I ended up quitting New Warriors just a little while after that. And Nomad got canceled. So there go all my monthly titles just like that. And that's what, 96, I want to say? 95. 95, 95, heading towards 96. Well, if it's any comfort, that's when X-Men got bad for a long time. Uh, you know what? I've never read, <laughs> I have, to this I, to this day, I've never read, I never read any of the Onslaught stuff. It's not good. Don't bother. I, I never read anything, anything Scott or Mark Wade were doing. I think Mark was on the book for a cup of coffee. He didn't even stay on the book very long, right? It was brief, yeah. Yeah, the, the I didn't pick up X-Men stuff again until the late 90s after I left the claim, and they asked me to script some issues so i read some of the the joe kelly and and siegel stuff but but i wasn't you know and and to this day i haven't i haven't read x-men in any kind of a regular fashion in 25 years literally i mean i i read it sporadically so Mm -hmm. i read a lot of the joss whedon stuff i read a lot of the grant morrison stuff i didn't read it again for a long long time i read some of the mike carry stuff Mm -hmm. through trade paperbacks i thought he did a lot of good stuff he really did yeah i'm reading a bunch of the hickman stuff now in trade paperback form so like i i just finished the first x-force trade Mm -hmm. paperback like last week on my my digital app. I try to stay aware of it, yeah. but I'm not even close to being immersed in it. Well, I'll tell you, it sounds like you hit the greatest hits because my position as someone who has an X-Men podcast, you know, my father's an X-Men collector. I grew up essentially, X-Men was my first language. Like I was reading, he bought me the Marvel Masterworks, the giant size one and the X-Men one one at the same time and was like, whichever jumping on point you want, you know, and they had just come out. And it was like with you, sort of the giant size cast that really, in the Cockrum art that really grabbed me. But I would say after Claremont, I think that there's a lot of good stuff in that early 90s period when you were writing. Then I think after Age of Apocalypse, it kind of drives off a cliff for a long time. And then Morrison, I love. And Mike Carey, I love. And this Hickman stuff, I love. And there are other good things in the intervening years, but... It was pretty feast or famine. I don't know. The only the only stuff I think that it sounds like you maybe didn't hit that I thought was overall pretty strong. I, I mean, I always enjoy Kieran Gillen, but he was on it very briefly. And I liked some of the stuff Bendis did. Not all of it, but 
Oh wait, I did read a bunch of the Bendis stuff. The 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 young version. The teens coming forward. Up. Yeah. Yeah. I I I find Bendis's work really readable, but on certain books, it clicks better than others. That's how I felt. It never clicked for me that well on X Men, but that's exactly how I felt. I was completely able to read it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was very it was very readable stuff. I just it just didn't necessarily click. Well, I think one of the biggest problems is is that that they spent they spent so much time trying to figure out what it should be as a franchise rather than trying very hard to make it what it is. Right. You know, um, and, and even, even this, the, the, the Hickman verse stuff right now is very interesting and very unique and odd, but it's not X-Men. Oh, <laughs> see, know? I think it is. It, it, it's not the DNA of X-Men the way, the way that the simplicity of the X-Men's DNA calls for sure. it. And, and, and maybe it can't be anymore. Maybe That's, it's, too yeah. com- it's too complicated by continuity and time and, and, and character expansions. But, but I often long for the simplicity of the core DNA of the, of the franchise, which is we will help the very people who fear and hate right. us. Simple as that. Boom. Just like that. I don't see that in in the books right now, necessarily. Well, you'll get there because you're reading in trade. And in the most recent stuff, Scott and Gene have kind of said, we have to get back to basics. We have to do that. I think there's a direction that they're putting in. Okay, good. I think that part of it is that after Morrison, there was sort of a top-down revolt against the way that Morrison had moved the book so forward and made it more expansive with like so many more mutants worldwide and all of that stuff. And so then they did the House of M and Decimation, all of that, and tried to really force it back into that there's only like 50 of us and we all live in one place. And to me, those stories just didn't work as well, despite Mike Carey, I think, doing a lot of really inventive work in that constraint. And so I think that this era is something of a response to that. And I think that in spirit, it's very much like the Claremont work. I think that thematically and scope-wise, yes, it's certainly gotten much bigger and is very different. But part of what I like about it is that it allows for, you know, there are like 15 titles. There's a book for everybody is sort of how it feels at this moment with a writer that's excited about it. Nobody's writing, you know, because they they feel like they need to write it. So like my client, Teeny Howard, is writing Excalibur and she is a lifelong Captain Britain and Excalibur fan of that 80s and early 90s stuff. And to me, who also loved that book, it feels very, you know, like it's recapturing some of that. And then there's Ben Percy's X-Force, which totally couldn't be more different from that. And I've never been a huge X-Force person outside of the early stuff when it was transitioning out of New Mutants, when it got more and more, you know, actually, I'd be interested. I mean, I don't know how much of any of it you've read, but I'd be interested in your take on kind of how X-Force evolved after you left. I haven't. I got. Yeah, I have. I have like seven uh, Rick Remender trade paperbacks mm-hmm. of X-Force in my, in my, in my app to, that I honestly have no enthusiasm to, to download one and read it. Uh, I read the Percy, the first Percy one, uh, Dustin Weaver, I think drew most of those issues. I, I read, I read that one because I had to, I had to, for some work that I'm, I'm doing. I'm not a fan of what they think X-Force is. Mm-hmm. It's completely legitimate as as a book concept to have you know a band of hard-ass tough mutant characters a black ops team yeah yeah but but it's not the reason why x-force 
became what it became. It's where I kind of fell off X-Force was the Kyle and Yost when they turned it into that. Whereas in the 90s, it was like, okay, these new mutants were child soldiers, essentially were trained that way. What if they became a real paramilitary squad? What if they were more militant, fighting more militant enemies? It, it felt like it was... Yeah, and, but I never, I never, the, my, the and the reason I have a disconnect from it is because I never saw that transition happen. Yeah. As a reader, I, I, I don't know when the transition happened from former new mutants who are trying to stake their way of doing things which is a little tougher and a little blunter and a little dumber mm -hmm. <laughs> versus all of a sudden having Wolverine and Deadpool and Domino and right and stuff like that in a book called X-Force. So I never saw that transition. I mean, it was abrupt. Basically, the six-month gap, that was in 2000, and they jumped ahead, and it was like, well, Danny left because they're working with Pete Wisdom now, and they've gone a little more Black Ops, and it was it, it abruptly was a pretty different book. And then that ended and got turned into the Milligan book that became Ecstatics. Then the title X-Force was gone for a while until after House of M, they just started up a totally new thing with the name X-Force, essentially. And it has no particular continuity with the previous iteration. Everything you're explaining right now makes me realize how little I care. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, you know. I just don't care. <laughs> well, it's interesting because the spirit of the X-Force you knew, which is like, who are the new mutants now if they're trying to move into their 20s and be adults, is something that has been explored and continues to be explored, but it's usually in a title now called New Mutants again. Yeah, exactly. And they're not they're not New Mutants anymore. I mean, Right. Well, I think that that's part of the existential thing. And I, I'm really enjoying when you get to it in the digital and the trade and all that. Vita Ayala has only done a couple issues, but they are really emphasizing like we're the New Mutants, but we should be teaching now because we're like 25, right? So we have to get with the program. You know, we're not new anymore. And there are all these kids who are new. What should we do with them? You know, I think that's good, but yeah, I just can't. Yeah, I, it, yeah, it, it's it's very hard for me. <laughs> I imagine to, to, to maintain an interest level yeah, in, in yeah. it as a reader. Not the least of which is I'm 59 years old and and I'm reading less and less and less. Well, there's that too. The older I get, you know? yeah. So to bring us into a time when you still had quite a bit of enthusiasm as a reader and a writer, to Adam X. What inspired that whole story? It's X-Men 23, I want to say, when Sinister drops yes. that bomb. Yes. And then it's sort of a slow burn. And for years, and I remember this, like younger, only real 90s kids remember. Like I remember the intense debates that would happen on the nascent internet and like in about who it was, whether it was Gambit, who was the big candidate that people, which I never thought was the case. And then when Adam X was introduced, people were like, oh, it's this thing. But then the story didn't get an enormous opportunity to develop. So how did it all kind of germinate for you? Uh, I, it, it came solely out of script first. Um, I was scripting that X-Men 23 issue. And I thought it would be coy of Sinister to say something insinuating like that just to poke mm -hmm. and I handed it in and Bob really liked it. And he said, what do you think? And I said, I, I think that uh, there's a kid out there somewhere from to Ken and, and, and Catherine. Catherine Summers. And 
And there you go. And Bob said, ooh, oh, okay. It's dark. It's a dark idea. I mean, what happens? He said, not rape, though, right? I go, no, no way, no. Not oh, rape. interesting. Goes, and he goes, oh, okay. And that was it. Uh, well, because I got to be honest with you, to this day, that panel that showed the Ken stabbing Kate Summers, I think is one of the single worst panels in a comic book ever. Yeah, I'm not fond of it. I, I, it is it is a poorly executed, poorly drawn, cramped scene and panel, and Chris and Dave didn't do a good job with it. They did not do it respectfully or right. And I was not going to do that to her after it had already been done to her. You know what I mean? That honestly makes me really happy to hear because my hesitation about Adam X as a character, honestly, has always been the assumption on my part that he was conceived by rape, which wouldn't be his fault. But I was like, haven't we done enough to Catherine Ann Summers? You know, that was kind of my same I mean, you feeling. Were, well, you were operating for 25 years under a false assumption. <laughs> um, and... and and, you know, if you paid attention to the uh, Secret Wars Age of Apocalypse miniseries I did like five years ago, I showed. Oh, I, I showed I showed his origin. Uh, you know, I showed aspects of his origin in that series. I will go back. I will go back and peek at that. I didn't read all the Secret Wars tie-ins. And it's in X-Men Legends number one, too, as well as being further further developed in x-men legends number two but i also way back in captain marvel number three which gets referenced a lot in this first x-men legends issue mm -hmm. because that was my that was my thumb my thumbing of my nose to to bob for not letting me do the miniseries i just said well screw it i'm gonna give away as many of the secrets as i can right. in a captain marvel <laughs> issue it's like genus vel can deal with this right yeah. without outright saying it i'm going to outright say it and i basically did in that issue mm-hmm even in that issue, it's it's presumed that he is nothing but a hybrid of Shi'ar and, and, and human DNA. Right, but how many humans were in the Shi'ar galaxy that we know of? And how many humans were in the Shi'ar galaxy? Two. <laughs> um, somebody, somebody, uh, somebody on Twitter just like last week came up with a great bit that I hadn't even thought of, which was, what if it was Christopher Summers' DNA and Deken's DNA combined? Oh, like Superboy, so it's like Adam X has two dads. Well... I thought you'd still need a fertilized embryo, but okay, that's interesting. All right, that's cool. Shi'ar technology can do a lot of things. Apparently, but I haven't been coy about it. There's mm -hmm. no secret to this story. There's no hidden twist. No, even after you had left, I understood from interviews and things what it was supposed to be. And I always assumed, to, to the point where actually, and I don't know how you felt about it, but I was very annoyed by a lot of things about the Deadly Genesis story, but when they introduced a new third Summers brother who felt like he overwrote the Adam X story, I just was sort of like, you know, at the time I was still pretty young. I was very into the continuity and I was just like, this doesn't make sense because yada, 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 yada. But, you know, I recognize that it's comics and things happen and you make them make sense retroactively. That's how they, that's how it works. Con, you have to understand George Costanza in Seinfeld had one of the greatest lines in the history of writing. He said, don't forget, Jerry, it's not a lie if you believe it. Right? <laughs> so you can talk about Vulcan to your heart's content, but you're talking to someone who knows nothing about it because he didn't read it. I encourage you not to. I'm never going to read it because <laughs> I have no need to read it. Right. No, nothing, nothing that I have planned with Adam X in any way, shape or form changes whatever they did with Vulcan. 
And anything they did with Vulcan in no way, shape, or form changes the story I wanted to tell back then. Well, I'm glad that you've been able to tell it without that impacting your story. That was going to be my next question. Like, have you had to change anything for Legends because of that? The, The only thing I had to do is to cut a lot of stuff out. That's what I had to do. Mm-hmm. I had to cut a lot of a lot of slow stuff out. I had to cut a lot of character interaction out. It was going to be four issues, which was 88 pages. This is 50 pages of work. Mm-hmm. X-Men Legends number one is 30 pages. X-Men Legends number two is 20 pages. So I had to cut out probably about 14 or so pages, 14 to 18 pages of character interaction some slowdown time between Corsair and and the three kids, some downtime between Adam and Alex and Scott, some downtime in issue one that was going to do more at the farm with that little kid. Mm -hmm. And the reason that needed more time, you'll see at the end of issue two. (laughs) I thought you packed a lot into issue one. It felt very dense. Yeah, I did pack a lot. And then a lot of that's because Brett, and then a lot of that's testament to Brett too, for his ability to draw a lot on any given panel. <laughs> um, he can draw three things happening at the same time on one panel. All I really did is condense stuff that I wanted to have. I don't want to give away too much. Well, you can tell me anything and I'll cut it. But <laughs> There's some reveals, there's some character reveals and some appearances in part two that literally would have been the entire third issue of the, of the miniseries. Mini. You know, but it, it it is done in a double page spread and then all of a sudden, boom, we cut to another place you know Mm -hmm. so what would have taken almost an entire issue of a miniseries to do got basically truncated and and a lot of that what that ends up doing is it really it it really draws away the ability to build character relationships and the ability to manifest exactly what the importance of this character meant to the shiar empire good and bad so I really had to shortcut a lot of that. Mm-hmm. I don't think it necessarily hurts the story, but it the other stu- it would have helped the story otherwise, right. <laughs> you know? So the end of issue two is exactly where I was going to end it in 1995. That must be so exciting to finally get to put it out there. It, it, yeah, it feels good because it, it, it feels good because no matter what anyone thinks or no matter what anyone says, I got to tell the story, not necessarily the way I wanted to tell the story, but I got to tell the story and end it exactly how I planned. And it was even back then with the understanding that this character opens up a can of worms Mm -hmm. that may not necessarily need to be open. Right. right? (laughs) So what was a throwaway fun line in one issue turns into a subplot, turns into a miniseries. And the way I tried to structure it purposefully for the sake of thinking about it from the standpoint of long-term continuity I tried to structure it in a way that it never has to affect anything ever again if you don't want it to. Well, that's helpful since it's now going to be in continuity retroactively 20, 30 years ago. And and you'll see when you see the end of the issue, you'll go, oh, OK. Yeah, that explains a lot of the last 20 years. You know, he has popped up again recently. Yeah, I heard. I heard. I heard after I'd already scripted the issues and that Leah was Leah's using, using him or some little bits. Haven't read it, not going to read it. Whatever anyone wants to do with him, however they want to interpret him, I know that he's dropped in a panel here or there in the past few years. Yeah. I've seen some of those, mostly online, not in the comic itself. Right. I I think they're stupid, but I understand (laughs) why. I understand why the writers wanted to 
make it stupid because they thought they were being cute. That's fine. Right. I don't care. And I totally get that. One of the things I like about Leah Williams as a writer is that I don't ever feel like she dismisses things as stupid. I think that she has a lot of love for the material. And so she used him in a way that I thought was funny, but it didn't feel disrespectful of the character, I would say, in a way that a lot of his previous appearances have felt like, remember this guy from the 90s? Like, let's do something embarrassing to him well, or whatever. you know what? The, the beauty of the end of issue two of X-Men Legends is it leaves it open that anybody can do any stupid thing they want with him in any stupid way. Well, there you go. That's all I can say. I'm looking forward to reading it. It totally justifies anybody's bad take on the character. <laughs> and, and look... <laughs> I get the bad takes and I get the joke and I, I get I get that I, I bear some of that responsibility because I didn't do a good enough job with the things I did with him when I had him. The frustrating thing for me is that I never I never got the chance to redeem what I didn't mm-hmm. do well enough to begin with. So this for me is partial redemption of the character that's all it doesn't it's it's never going to be full redemption of the character because he absolutely is a product of his time he's very of the 90s but but just because the character is of the 90s doesn't mean that he thinks he's of the 90s no to him he's a real person (laughs) right so so i i want i want what you get out of the two issues hopefully is a little bit of sense of sadness a little sense of loss and maybe a little sense of hope that he has a chance to be happy because for the most part, he hasn't had much of a chance to be happy in his life. No. I mean, he has kind of that Luke Skywalker thing where he grows up in sort of a humble way and then everybody he loves gets murdered because he's of greater significance than he thought he was. uh, In 1994, I told Bob, He's Luke Skywalker of the X-Men. Yeah, which is a good concept. Bob said, oh, that's cool. That's cool. <laughs> Never got to do it. But that, that's that's how I envisioned him from way back when. Mm-hmm. If instead of a glowing sword, Luke Skywalker had 77 blades on his body, that's exactly what he would have been like. <laughs> I just remember that X-Force annual story where you go into kind of his backstory a little bit and all of that. It also has that fun character. I think they should bring back Neurotap. Yeah, I liked her too. She's good. I was going to bring her back two or three times and I just never could find a way to make it fit. But I liked her. And and again, she was a woman of color and we yeah. could always use more of that. You introduced a couple of women of color in your... Yeah, I, I introduced Threnody too. Threnody, who I've always really loved. I'd love to see Threnody come back in a big way. And, and if we want to go into New Warriors, Silhouette as well. Mm-hmm. I have always, always leaned towards diversity before diversity was even a word Mm -hmm. and part of that might be my upbringing and my immigrant background but the truth of the matter is is that i am an inherently lazy writer and diversity makes it easier to write diversity creates character interaction engagement conflict differences of opinion differences of background differences of thought and belief that makes it easier to write not harder to you know? And it's one of the things that I've always found most compelling about the X-Men, particularly the Claremont X-Men and what came after, is that by bringing in characters with all these very different backgrounds and backstories and traumas and things like that, it makes the minority metaphor of the mutants feel more real. It makes the interaction between them more robust. Threnody was a character I found really interesting because she's sort of reminiscent of Rogue, right, in the way that like her power is a lousy power. Like She drew a bad yes. hand. Yes. I'm also, I'm a huge Madeline Pryor person. 
I sort of moonlight as Madeline Pryor's defense attorney. So X-Man was not my favorite iteration of Madeline Pryor, but I'm very familiar with Threnody because I read every issue of that book. Yeah, I found I didn't even know that she appeared in X-Man a lot. She's his girlfriend. She's in yeah, it for a long time. I, I didn't know that all through the 90s. I didn't know that until <laughs> much, much later. Yeah, no, that was cool. But I like her in that initial arc. I think that actually, if you're reading Percy's X-Force now, the place Hank has been taken to over the last 15, 20 years, Jay Edidin and I talked about this once on Twitter, Jay brought it up and I was like, I agree because I've never forgotten this issue. The moment that Hank really starts to go down a, a dark path is when he gives Threnody to Sinister so that Sinister will help yeah. research the legacy yeah. virus. The legacy virus forced Hank away from his happy-go-lucky gorilla mode. And he started making immoral choices. I regret that. I regret that completely <laughs> ever since. If I had anything to do to push him down that path, and I obviously did, I made a huge mistake with him because no. the best Hank McCoy is the Hank McCoy from the Avengers. <laughs> so That's certainly the one I like the most, but I found yeah. a lot of the darker takes on him very compelling, at least I would say. Yeah, unfortunately, there's only one way, there's only one path that that takes and it's a negative spiraling downward yeah no exactly there's not and, and and writers can't pull the character out of it he's kind of too far gone at this point it's the hank pym syndrome the minute you have him hit jan then it gets it's just only going to keep getting worse and it's compounded by the fact that generationally it feels like every generation of writers wants to be more bombastic and grosser and excessive than the generation before and as a result, we're at a point now where the writers think that the way to make a character interesting is to make them do something exponentially worse or edgier or tougher or more conflicted than what they did before. And as a result, every five to 10 years with every cycle of new writers that come in, you get characters that are taken down deeper, darker paths as a result. That it's hard to pull them back from. It's yeah. impossible to pull yeah. some of these guys back. Are you going to be able to have Hank McCoy have a few beers with Wonder Man and bounce around and have a, have a fun adventure? I find Hank pretty irredeemable at this point. And I think that what Percy's doing is saying, listen, this character has been made pretty irredeemable. Let's take that to its logical conclusion. That's what that book feels like but to me. But that's a mistake too. That, that's my problem with it because that's that's the logical assumption you think a writer should make. And as a result, it only makes it worse because Benjamin Percy is not going to be writing X-Force for the next 700 years, right? <laughs> Which means whoever writes him afterwards is going to do something worse with Hank. <laughs> Oof. I'm now trying to imagine what the worst place to take Hank would be. I, I sort I'm of sure beggars the some... imagination. But you know what? There's always something. There's some 20-year-old kid right now <laughs> who's imagining it. And when they're 35, they'll get the chance to do it. Now is a great moment just briefly to pause for the Cerebro character file on Adam Naramani. This will be brief because he only has 16 appearances, including the most recent. I didn't even know how many. You, when you told me when you told me that many, <laughs> I was stunned because I can only count the ones from my yeah. original time and it was only like six. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six are basically just cameos. And then he had the bit in Leah's X Factor and then the Legends issue. So yeah, it's not a super huge amount of stuff to cover. So I'm going to go through that, and then we will come right back for more with Fabian Nicieza. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Adam Naramani, better known as Adam X the Extreme, is a curiosity of the X-Men franchise finally having his moment in the sun. Created by writer Fabian Nicieza and artist Tony Daniel, 
Adam was intended as the answer to a provocative question Nicieza had raised in his earlier work on the X-Men. What if there were actually more than two Summers brothers? In 1993's X-Men 23, the evil Mr. Sinister, a mad geneticist obsessed with the Summers bloodline, refers to Scott Summers, aka Cyclops, as having brothers, plural. Scott is confused because so far as he knows, he only has one brother, Alex, codenamed Havoc. Sinister coyly refuses to clarify, but fans were immediately inflamed with theories. The popular character Gambit was the most frequent theoretical Summers offered up by readers, but Nicias's intended third Summers brother was introduced a few months later in X-Force Annual No. 2. In this story, readers meet Extreme, that's X-Treem, aka Adam X, an amnesiac half-human, half-Shi'ar warrior with the mutant power to ignite oxygenated blood. He typically oxygenates the blood by slicing people up with bladed weapons, whereupon he flash fries them. It is, indeed, extreme. X-Force, a paramilitary group composed partly of former New Mutants, has been investigating Foundations, an outreach charity for mutants led by industrialist Martin Henry Strong. Adam and his lover Michelle Balters, a mutant calling herself Neurotap, are volunteers at Foundations who have offered themselves as test subjects. They discover Strong's true goal, funded by the government's project Wide Awake, is to find a way to eliminate the mutant gene. Neurotap enlists X-Force's help in stopping him, and after a pitched battle between X-Force and Adam X, Neurotap convinces Adam to betray Strong as well. Adam's hesitant because Strong has promised to help him find out more about his mysterious origins, but ultimately he goes along with Neurotap's request, only to discover she has been a double agent for Strong the entire time, working to flush out X-Force. Adam X is then trapped in the Assassin Arcade's lethal amusement park, Murder World, at the behest of the mysterious Mr. Milbury, actually Mr. Sinister, who seeks to test him. Adam later manages to connect the name Milbury with experiments at the Alamogordo Research Facility in New Mexico years earlier, and learns Professor Xavier might know more about his past. He never gets a chance to talk to Xavier, however, and instead ends up in Alaska, where by coincidence he saves Cyclops and Havoc's grandfather, airline owner Philip Summers, from the wreckage of a small plane crash. Adam tells Philip that he's an outcast, an alien from another world, and uses his power for the first time to heal rather than harm, warming the old man to prevent him from dying of hypothermia. Philip is permanently blinded by his injuries, and Adam, visiting him in the hospital, asks Jean Grey to link them telepathically so he can share his own memories of spaceflight with Philip as a parting gift. From afar, they are observed by Davan Shikari, the Shi'ar agent known as Eric the Red. From even further afar, Davan Shikari is observed, observing them, by Mr. Sinister. Adam X is next seen in a cameo appearance in X-Men 41. He's depicted battling Shikari just before a time travel incident creates the Age of Apocalypse reality warp. Fabian Nicieza departed from X-Force and X-Men during that event, but he did his best to wrap up the Adam X storyline in the pages of the new Captain Marvel series, starring Genus Vell, the son of the original Captain Marvel. We learn Adam X grew up on a Shi'ar border planet, raised by a farmer named Jonath who had adopted him. His friends and family were slaughtered by the Shi'ar Imperial Praetor Guards, and Adam became a wanderer, traveling across the Empire and battling Shi'ar forces until he somehow wound up on Earth without his memories. Brainwashed by Davan Shikari after losing their battle, Adam is forced to become a disciple of the Crystal Claws, an extremist Shi'ar cult. He's sent to kill Genus Vell, who manages to negate the mind control effect, and Adam joins him in battling their way to Shikari. Shikari explains Adam is the bastard child of the former magister, Emperor Deken, created via genetic engineering to produce a powerful human-Shiar hybrid heir. The Crystal Claws hope to depose Deken's sister, Empress Lalandra, and seat Adam on the throne of the Shi'ar Empire. 
Adam rejects the support of the cult and uses his powers to destroy their area in an explosion. Genus Val and Adam return to Earth, where Adam continues to wander. This was the last Adam X story by Fabian Niciesa, who had written all of his adventures up to that point. Niciesa's intention was that Adam was the biological child of Deken and Catherine Ann Summers, Cyclops and Havoc's mother, who had been captured by the Shi'ar Empire alongside her husband Corsair decades earlier. This plot point wasn't brought to fruition on the page before Nicias's departure from Marvel, and a later story, 2005's Deadly Genesis by Ed Brubaker, instead revealed a new character, Gabriel Summers, aka Vulcan, as the answer to the mystery of the third Summers brother. While Adam X makes a few cameo appearances following the decimation as a resident of the mutant haven Utopia, none of these stories were especially impactful, and the character has mostly been ignored in the 25 years since Nicias last wrote him. He recently appeared in Leah Williams's X-Factor as a resident of Mojo World, where he tries to help the captured mutant Windancer escape from captivity. Now, in the first arc of the new anthology series X-Men Legends, Fabian Niciesa returns to pen a new incontinuity story set in 1995, which will complete the Adam X story the way he originally intended 25 years ago. What this will mean for the Summers family, and the world of the X-Men, is yet to be revealed. X-Men, X-Men! And we're back. Thank you for sticking with us. I am here, as before, with Fabian Nicieza, 90s X-Men legend, current architect of the first arc of X-Men Legends, the anthology title that is revisiting old and iconic arcs. I must be an X-Men legend because the book is the called The book is X -Men called X-Men Legends. Right. Did you see what I did there? Right, exactly. It could have been called X-Men has been. It would have been great. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved it. I would have jumped on board. You got you have no idea how hesitant I was about getting involved in this and doing the book or anything. If it had been called X-Men Hasbins, I would have said yes immediately. Put me in coach, right? Yes, I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> so before we get into reader questions, I have to ask about those purple gals because I love them so much. When you created revanche and did that whole storyline the story that tends to go around is that you hadn't really read the initial story and so you didn't realize that they had just transformed her no no here's the here's the reality of the situation it, it is true but not the way you say it okay, okay? all right i read every single issue of x-men and i had every single issue of x-men since uncanny x-men 94 that's why i'm like there's no way he didn't read that issue giant size x-men one as we discussed earlier right i was missing one issue of x-men i have no idea how because it was already <laughs> it was when i was working at marvel so i was getting them for free by then okay mm -hmm. the one issue i was missing was the one issue where Chris had like a one panel subplot advancement that showed Spiral or Mojo or whatever shifting right. bodies. Yeah. As a result, when I went to back reference, I'm flipping through and you have to understand how difficult it was to back reference X-Men stuff because one of Chris's biggest flaws as a writer is his inability to consistently build a subplot to fruition stuff dangles chris's subplots were sporadically dropped at a leisurely pace and i say that <laughs> in a loving way because i love chris i think he would agree you could go three four issues without a subplot being mentioned mm -hmm. or shown and the and the the, the psylocke to bet uh, betsy you know, Caucasian to Asian right. subplot 
went months without anything happening in it. Right. So I missed the transition. Well, that period's particularly confusing. I was just rereading it because an omnibus came out, and it's when they're all split apart because of the Siege Perilous. So it jumps yes. around the world, every issue, and you will you won't see a given character for, like, months on end. Yes. And you'll be like, oh, there's Rogue. Thank She's you. back, you know? Thank you. Yeah. And, and, and that's another time I stopped reading the book. I told you earlier <laughs> that there were times. I stopped reading the book during Siege Perilous, and I was getting it for free, okay? Oh. That's how much I didn't enjoy it. So I made the mis- I made a referencing research mistake. Mm. Simple as that. It's my fault. I missed it. But I think your version's better because I think that if she literally had been walking around in yellow face, whether it was plastic surgery or not, for the last 30 years, that would have been a lot messier than the idea that the that she switched her body with a real woman, especially now that the real woman gets to be her own character, which I think is great. Yeah. And the, see, I just pitched it as though, what if it was just a mind transfer? And I just thought that was interesting. Right. The other reason why I wanted to do it is because in advance of Scott's marriage, I wanted to juice it up a little bit mm-hmm. and there was never any intention of scott not marrying gene but we didn't want scott to be an old man so we thought if there's a little sexual tension that will be interesting for scott mm-hmm. in anticipation of his marriage because he's such a stiff he's such a straight guy right. right so so that's another reason why i did it i could excuse betsy braddock from doing that because aspects of Quanon were starting to bleed. And I didn't realize the mistake I made because Bob's my freaking editor and he edited those <laughs> issues and he never caught it. So I didn't realize the mistake I made until the days after the issue came out when we got our first letters. And I was right. like, what the hell? What are you kidding me? And I go home and I can't find an issue. I, I realize I'm <laughs> missing an issue. I, and it wasn't like now when an, an annoying person like me could tweet at you that day and be like, baby, and I'm confused because in such and such issue, you had to wait for the letters. You to had come to in. wait for the letters. This was a build. OK, and I couldn't just I couldn't just Google at the office immediately. I had to actually take the bus home to Jersey, go to my basement and find the issues in my basement, you know, so. So I then had to fix the mistake I made, which was the second mm-hmm. story that we did. Right. And then that was it. After, you know, everyone wanted to keep Asian Psylocke because they liked her better. That's all there was to it. She was more popular. She just was. Fans liked her better. They liked the visual better. It was interesting. It was never Betsy Braddock to me, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why I like the solution they've found now, which is just let Psylocke be Kanon. Like, there's no reason to... I think if Quanon is an actual character in the books right now, that's kind of interesting. It's fun. I'm telling you, you should read Hellions. It's good, and she's great. I, I never gave much thought to her as a character long term because i knew that she wouldn't be a character long term for me you know you knew you were going to kill her well once we once we realized the mistake we made we knew we were going to kill the original body gotcha and and keep betsy's mind in quanon's body right as it were you know it is a continuity slip but i do think that in the long run it makes for a better story i like the issues where they team up One thing that is a little confusing, and I wonder if it's because of that moment in the middle where you went, oh, gosh, is initially it seems like Revanche is in on it with Matsuo or whoever and knows that she's lying. And then as it went on, she's innocent and they're both confused because of the mind swap. Was that 
like a writing choice or do you not remember it's been a long time uh, but i have not looked at those issues in 25 <laughs> years and i am not going to look at those issues for another 25 years you're by no means obligated to they just obviously made an impact on me when i was a kid i loved her look Honor, i loved that outfit when i turn 85 you are welcome I'll call you. to have me on your podcast and mm -hmm. i will reread those issues and we'll talk <laughs> We'll do it live. That'll be good. It'll be a live holographic conversation. Exactly. Got. A hologram of, yeah. No, no exactly. I, got, I, I, I have, I honestly haven't looked at them. That's what I expected, but I had to ask you have because to, it's you something have I've wondered about diligence. since I was a kid and I have to do my due diligence. Right? All right. Let me put it this way. I find it adorable that you asked. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, the fact that I care, that must, I mean, that experience itself must be fascinating, right? That there are so many people who've spent years and years and years thinking about plots that you would just as soon toss out the window. You know what I mean? I, yeah, I, I learned, I've had a very healthy perspective on fandoms, wants, desires, expectations. I've had it for a very, very long time. The same day, at San Diego Comic-Con, like in 92 or something, 93, a fan waited two hours in line not to get something signed, just to tell me he thought I sucked. And that was followed just five people later with someone dropping an issue of X-Men in front of me. It was the single issue of X-Men that I hated the most. And he told me that it was his favorite comic in the world of his <laughs> life. And I... What I'm, is he wrong? Of course he's not wrong. Right. It's his favorite comic. No, because you know, yeah. is the guy who says I suck wrong? No, he's not wrong. He he thinks I suck. Fine. So it, you know, it it really put it all in in a really simple perspective to me. You guys think about this stuff sometimes a lot more than we do, mm -hmm. because we're we're working on the next one. We're working on the next one before right. you've even read the one you're reading. You know. And as you pointed out, a lot of the time, especially in monthly comics, you have to come up with this stuff real fast. So a lot of the time it's like, I've had this experience before. I'm talking to someone, I'm like, what did you mean in this? And it's like, I don't know. I wrote that in a week, yeah. you know, like it's not, it's yeah, yeah, not yeah, a, yeah. it's not something yeah. I thought about for you know, years. It, as opposed to novelists where they might work for years on one piece. It's something that you really have to produce as a serial. So it just goes in all kinds of directions. The other side of the coin is no matter what, you're still going to get screwed. It took me 25 years to get to tell the Adam X story <laughs> and we were late as hell on it. Okay. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> how, could it, how could it take 25 years to tell a story that you're ridiculously late on the schedule for? You're like, what? Like, uh, you know, it is funny that you finally got a chance to do this. And then a global pandemic hit. It's like the world is conspiring against. Oh no, Connor, it, Adam goes, X. it goes way beyond that. This, <laughs> the, the, we didn't even get the green light light on this thing until the fall okay oh really yeah no this is really really tight um i don't wow. understand it i will talk about it because i don't care anymore at my age <laughs> um, <laughs> i was offered this just a few months ago and wow and brett and adelso have had to just bust their asses not only that i scripted the two issues and delivered them and then Marvel decided that they were going to launch the series with this, so we added 10 pages to the first issue, okay? Mm -hmm. So I had to go back and re-script the first issue to add 10 pages to it, all right? So wow. this entire book you're looking at right now, the two issues have been turned around in 
four months or less, which is faster than it should be. Normally, that's faster than it should be. I imagine it helps that you already had the outline of the story in your head. Yeah, yeah, that part of it wasn't the issue. It was just the the scripting, scripting of it, it. And, and um and Brett drawing it because there's a lot for him to have to draw. The the irony of waiting 25 years to tell something that you're already late on the schedule for it. it's, just, <laughs> it's just hilarious it's it's comics that that defines monthly comics more than anything i can imagine and i've been doing this for 30 plus years right that, that i wait yeah. 25 years to tell the story and i'm and, and literally we are already late on the schedule before the first issue is even started you know well, that is comics in a nutshell. But the guy, the guy, you you got it. You don't whether you like Brett's art or not is almost is, is irregardless of that. The the amount of work these guys did, uh, Brett and Adelso and 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 um, Guru FX for colors, who I don't even know if that's a company or a person. The amount of work they did in the amount of time they had is phenomenal because they busted their asses busted their asses and i don't think readers today especially appreciate art as much as they should the readers today are so writer driven that they don't appreciate the amount of physical labor it takes to produce this art i don't want to get into the weeds but i do think that with brett booth a lot of the surus is not necessarily about the art itself but about controversies he's had and things he's said and yeah, I knew, knew I knew a little about that stuff, although not much. Um, I, he said some stuff about Jews I wasn't crazy about. Yeah, I'm I'll sure. Just say I also, he's, he's, he's a very outspoken atheist. I'm an atheist too, but I'm not an outspoken atheist. I get it. It's just, you know, you've got to be careful how you talk about I it. I will say this though, Connor. Marvel is vetting people now on all of that stuff. They'll excuse something poorly said or something stupidly said, but they won't excuse a decade-long pattern of stupidity or whatever, you know? We just saw, obviously, something very anti-Semitic that made its way into yeah, a comic, yeah. and they dealt with that very promptly. Yeah, I, I don't I, I don't know Brett that well. I'm not saying he's an anti-Semite. I don't think he's an anti-Semite. He has said some things, though, like sort of singling out Jews and Muslims. He's an anti-religite, you know? I think maybe he should focus on Christians because they're the ones with the hegemony over everything. That's just <laughs> my, that's my hot take. But in any case, because that's a whole other... Good call. Well, sometimes it gets political. I had Spencer Ackerman on, who's a reporter with the Pulitzer Prize, and we talked about Magneto and Zionism for like three hours. Uh -oh. So sometimes it happens. Oh, God. Oh, God. D don't, drag, don't drag me into Magneto. I won't. I won't. The thing you said about the fan who said that the issue you didn't care about was like their best issue of all time and the fan who thinks you suck, they're both right. I think that that's a really mature attitude to have, and it's something I always try to impress upon my clients in the trade publishing world. Teeny Howard, when she was on the podcast, said that Jonathan Hickman often says, the worst thing you can do is get between the reader and the story because their experience with the story is not really your business. Like you need to produce the thing. And if you start getting between them and the story, you're making a mistake. I think that that is true, but it's hard, of course, not to want to explain yourself or to be like, really that one? You know, but create... Creative people are naturally insecure. Mm -hmm. Comic book people are naturally socially awkward and insecure. You combine all of that and it's a, and you combine that with the internet and it's a recipe for disaster. And, and a lot <laughs> of creative people, this isn't new, this has been the case forever. A lot of creative people are incapable of shrugging off criticism. Right. You know, 
and they desperately need adulation. I, I've never been one for any of that stuff. I, I'm so confidently arrogant in who I am and what I do that it never worried me one way or the other. Do I want you to like it? Of course I want you to like it. Of course, right. Does it bother me if you didn't like it? It bothers me if you didn't like it. No matter what, though, whether you liked it or didn't like it, chances are pretty good. In order to have that opinion, you had to have bought it. Mm. So if you bought it, I've already been paid. (laughs) See, I think what's frustrating now with the internet is a lot of the people who have negative things to say haven't bought it, which is frustrating, you know? Yeah, and I don't, I don't, but that's, I, I, I can shrug that off even faster than someone <laughs> who bought it who has a negative opinion of it, you know? Someone who bought it, they spent their money on you, so it feels bad if they didn't like it, I imagine, more than it does if it's someone just, you know, dropping in. My percentage is already in my pocket, you know? <laughs> you know, that... Listener Rubot wrote in, he said that his first issue of X-Men was number 20 in 1993 when Revanche first appeared and it blew his mind. And also there is a girl at his local grocery store in Manhattan named Kanon. And he asked her about it and she immediately replied, yeah, my dad's an X-Men fan. Oh my God, the poor girl. Okay, I get it. I just, so that goes to show you how much a story that you don't think much of could really make an impact on someone's life. It's her name. This girl who must now be, what, almost 30. That's unfortunate. I, I feel bad for her. That's, you know, she was, <laughs> it could have been worse. Her dad could have been a huge Threnity fan. <laughs> That's a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. And of course, there are Japanese women named Kanon because it's yeah. a real name, but not with a W. And I imagine you ask if the girl you're talking to at the grocery store is not Japanese, right? Yeah. That her dad's just an X-Men fan. I just, and you gotta, you know, it's funny because back then, research time and research ability was really limited. You know, we didn't, mm-hmm. it, it, it would take time to have to go to a library to find, find Japanese deities or Japanese names or, or, or to have an encyclopedia at home that might have that. What we can do in seconds today, yeah, it, 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 it could have taken half a day just to get a Japanese deity to use as a name for the character. Right. Well, you look back at the 80s when Sunspots introduced speaking Spanish, and it's like, yeah. Chris, they speak Portuguese yeah, in yeah, Brazil. Yeah. yeah. And I, I know that I got Quanon's name just by flipping through a book of deities. Yeah, because her master, Lord Niriren, yeah. Niriren Kanon is the deity. Like, that's yeah, the full so that, name. And that's where I got it from. Ultimately, you have to understand, back then, there was such an immaturity about us and the industry that... You shrug your shoulders and you go, that sounds pretty cool. And boom, that's it. Right. That's the justification. The justification is that sounds pretty cool. And that's why we right. do a lot of that stuff. You know, we didn't have that facile access to information that we do today. Even when I was writing my novel, I, I thought to myself, how the hell could I have written this book 30 years ago <laughs> with the amount right. of referencing you got to do on a moment's notice, you know, and, and, and that's pretty much what it was like much less finding reference for artists to use. Mm-hmm. You know, I click and drag images into my scripts now all the time for artists to use. Set eight, 10, 20 images in a script so the artist sees what I'm looking at, right? Yeah, something like this, right, yeah. That took me 20 seconds to do now. <laughs> Would have taken me 20 days to do back then, you know? Right, got to clip them out of Life magazine or something. All the, like all the artists had gigantic <laughs> clip files. All the, John Romita Sr. was the art director at Marvel. He had he had filing cabinets full of clip art. Wow. It was all magazine photographs and stuff like that, all labeled by different categories. And so if he needed That's a amazing. toaster, he could go to appliances and get 
a toaster. You know, it, 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 that's how they had to do it back then. Wow. Richard Terrones writes, in X-Men Legends 1, we get a flashback of Adam X and other children in embryonic chambers. We even see one chamber that says Eve. Are these the 616 counterparts from your Age of Apocalypse Volume 2 miniseries who were named Eve, Kane, and Abel, and our other siblings to Adam X and Cyclops? Thanks again for your time. <gasps> Could be. Could be. It we can't. Might only, it might only take Marvel another 25 years to explore <laughs> that. Yeah, I, that, that felt like a spoilery question, but I liked that this is someone clearly taking notes on the old stuff as well. So I like when Very well people done. find yes. things and, and like the, that. Ultimately, the there's also Shi'ar writing on those on those little test tubes too, um, mm -hmm. the little the little embryonic vats, and ultimately putting biblical names on it. It was just a little bit of Mad Emperor Dickens <laughs> silly fun. Yeah, you know. Joshua Link writes, Hi, Connor and Fabian. The first X-Men comics I ever read were the Generation Next arc within Phalanx Covenant. So Mr. Nisiezi gets major credit for turning me into a lifelong X-Men fan. My question is in regards to the Shi'ar Empire's hereditary ruling structure. As I understand it, the Magister or Magistrix role is passed down to the oldest child. If that child dies, it then goes to their eldest sibling if they don't have any children. As the son of Deken, does Adam have a better claim to the throne than the current magistrix, Xandra? Basically, I'm asking if Adam X is the Jon Snow of the Shi'ar Empire. Thanks for your time, Josh Link. The answer is yes, and read issue number two. <laughs> I mean, Jon Snow is also a very Luke Skywalker character, right? It's that kind of, like, of course, he has a great claim. to He's the long lost guy. That's the, that's yes, the point. The, the, whole, the, the, the whole gist of Adam's conundrum is that he has a greater right to the throne but the people who would support that claim are the psychos of the shiar right. empire <laughs> <laughs> it, if, it would be it would be as if the people in this country thought donald trump jr had a legitimate right to be president i imagine there are people who do yeah well the, the, their fervor for donald trump leads them to want the son to assume the throne in, in place of the father. So right. it's the wrong people you want backing you is what it amounts to. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Zach Wilson writes, Dear Mr. Goldsmith and Nicieza, I hope you're both doing well. Connor, what a get. The Havoc episode is fantastic. I eagerly await the Kitty episode. Thanks again for all your hard work. Before question time, Mr. Nicieza, I just want to extol your virtues a bit. I'd heard for years that the 90s weren't the best time for X-Men comics, and while that may have been true in some places, this year I went back and read through them, and I have to say you quickly became one of my favorite writers. Question time, while you've done a lot for the mutants over the years, if you could narrow it down, what's your proudest accomplishment in terms of contributions to X-Men lore? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, what's my proudest accomplishment to X-Men lore? I guess, I guess, you know, co-creating Deadpool has to be that. <laughs> That's, I mean, he's a pretty big IP. That's it's, a, made, yeah. it's made the company a few billion dollars. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, 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 I don't know. I can't speak to what my contribution to the lore is because that's for others to speak. My, my personal happiness comes from my X-Force run with Greg Capullo. Mm -hmm. It was too short, but it was a pleasure to work with him on that book. My first year with Steve Scross on the Gambit monthly book is something I'm very proud of and I like a lot. And my Cable and Deadpool run. If you, to be 100% honest, I do consider that part of X-Men lore. Oh, I think most people would, Even yeah. Even though I was smartly off to the side for all 50 issues of that, 
if I could take anything, it's getting Deadpool to wear Marvel Girl's green miniskirt costume. Pretty iconic moment. In an issue of Cable and Deadpool and Patrick Zerker drawing the panties <laughs> and his butt. <laughs> That that's probably my greatest contribution. To <laughs> I will say I also just as a gay reader really enjoyed a lot of the sort of interplay between Cable and Deadpool in that book. It was very Claremonty in that like they're best friends, but if you want to read it a certain way, you could read it a certain way. I don't know how much of that you intended. Well, with Deadpool, it's like well, Deadpool, Deadpool's into everybody. You could read it any way you want, <laughs> yeah. any time you want, right? Right. And from my mind. Cable comes from a time when that kind of stuff doesn't have the same level. I'm, I'm going to say the word importance, but I don't mean it that way. Right. You know, it doesn't have the, the same level of attention even right. that we have on it today. Yeah. And I got to be honest with you, if you're as old as I am, the, the level of attention we have on it now is nothing in comparison to the level of attention Certainly. that was on it 30 years ago. We've made a lot of progress, ago. yeah. Yeah, and, and the progress is always too damn slow, but it, when you've lived long enough, you can see the progress hopefully having happened. Mm -hmm. So think about what it would be like taking our course of action in the last 50 years or whatever and extrapolate that 2,000 years into the future. You have to hope that this kind of crap doesn't matter to people anymore. You just are what you are. You 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 love everything and everyone. Who cares? Cable's probably freaking banging plants. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he also happened to be raised by Rachel Summers, one of the gayest characters at Marvel, though they've never been allowed to say it. And her all-female sisterhood of, uh, I mean, it was a very Sappho island. Yeah, I didn't, island. I didn't read any of that stuff. <laughs> I didn't read any of that stuff. It came out as I was leaving and I hated Hated that Lobdell was usurping oh. the, the decision-making on Cable, so I always ignored it. I, oh, I ignored all the Ascani Sun stuff. I did. Other than the name, which I like, I never The name is it. good. I want them to call Rachel Ascani now. I think it's a good code name, and she's never been able to stick with one after she wasn't Phoenix anymore, so I think it would be good to just give her that now. I like the name because it falls back into that category we just talked about a few minutes ago. It's cool. Yeah, it just sounds like, cool. Doesn't mean, I like you know, it because yeah. it sounds cool. Right. So now there are some questions about X-Force because obviously your run on that was extremely significant. Rapid fire. Pame Bravo writes, Hi, Connor. Love the podcast. Thank you, Pame. Now, first of all, I need to tell Fabian I love his experts run. I'm from Mexico, and I got to say his Richter characterization is what made him one of my favorite characters of all time. I just love seeing a Mexican character as cool and relatable as him in comics. It means a lot to me. So thank you for that. I have two questions. First, who would win in a fight between Shatterstar and Adam X? Whoever the writer chooses to win the fight. Great answer. That's who wins any comic book fight. Yeah. Second question, I know you've said making Richter and Shatterstar a couple wasn't your intention, yet we can see them being very close in X-Force, so I was wondering what made you pair them off so often. Why was Richter Shatterstar's first friend? Was it a mere coincidence, or was it because you thought their personalities would work well together? I think I paired them off because there were other pairings that were happening in the book naturally. Warpath and Siren and Cannonball and Boomer right. and Feral and her anger. And, <laughs> and I just thought that they would gravitate towards each other. The idea that I had before I got fired off X-Force was to explore Shatterstar's sexuality in a non-binary way in that he had no idea what his sexuality was. Right. He didn't know 
whether he was gay or, or straight or bi or what any of that even necessarily means mm-hmm. because he, he wasn't raised with any kind of an understanding of those kinds of gender roles. Right. And, and as a result of that, he was going to assume that he was in love with Richter because they had so much in common and they were friends and they liked to spend time together. And Richter wasn't gay. I never wrote him. Gotcha. The thinking that he was gay. And the story then would have come from Richter having to explain to his friend what the differences are, why, why we are the way we are, why, why we want to be mm-hmm. who we want to be. And, and let, let that just be something that Shatterstar learns from. But I also wanted to use that to touch base on young males fear and leanings towards homophobia, even if they're not necessarily think they're homophobic. Like everybody's gone through that. Hey, wait a minute, back off, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And and I wanted to explore male sexuality that way too. And and Richter would have been a good character to do that with because he just has that stereotypical he had that machismo. Blood, you know, yeah, yeah that machismo. So that was my plan for that going forward. And and I know that they did different things with it. Loeb made it more of an equally romantic thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think that I, I, I think my my story, I was always leaning towards tragedy and loneliness for Shatterstar almost as the default. And this was a way to continue that cycle of tragedy and loneliness for him. He has to figure this stuff out. That's just ongoing monthly sausage grinding. You know, you're making. Right every single month so you don't you're never going to find happily ever after in a comic book unless you're getting canceled <laughs> then you can find happily ever right after. well i think that what's been interesting is since peter david explicitly put them together on the page they've been on again off again which personally as like a gay man i find very realistic because two men in a relationship is often two men failing to communicate so i i like that they come and go with each other but i do think that they're coming around again did do you know what the origin was that was revealed for Shatterstar that he's Dazzler and Longshot's kid. I found out about that in a podcast just a <laughs> couple of months ago. It's wild. No, he's really not, but okay. Uh, <laughs> did you have a plan for that or were you just, he's like just a Mojo world guy and you didn't have a deeper like origin idea. Rob said he's from hundreds of years in Longshot's future period. That was it. Right. There was never any thought on our part to connect the two biologically Mm -hmm. there was never any need to do that (laughs) he's from mojo world it's kind of to tie up another plot because there was also the plot where dazzler was pregnant and then she comes back and she's not pregnant anymore and they don't really talk about it yeah but that you know what that is i gotta connor here's here's what you don't want to (laughs) hear because it, it it sounds tawdry when i say it but it's the truth things like that that you just mentioned things like Cable turning out to be Scott and Madeline Pryor's son. That was other creators putting their fingers in the pie Mm -hmm. where they didn't belong. That was Jim and Wills poking and prodding at stuff Rob was doing. Rob didn't intend for Cable to be Madeline and Scott's son. Right, no, obviously not. And I don't think Rob intended Shatterstar to be Longshot's child or relative or anything like that. So it was Jim and Will's purposefully basically piggybacking on things Rob was doing, both to push and poke and prod, but also to suck up some of that energy that Rob was bringing to it. 
Okay. And it's not, it's not fair and it's not right, but they, it happened a lot back then. Even the very creation of Bishop is just an attempt to try to horn in on, on Rob's creation of Cable, you know? It's the nature of comics that the characters are going to change and be altered when new people get them, but it is a little different when someone's currently writing it and other creators are interfering, I guess. Yes, it, yeah, it is. That's very different. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> Daryl Braithwaite writes, Good day, Connor and Fabian. I'm a lifelong Feral fan, and for me, she was the active ingredient in early X-Wars. She didn't fit in, seemed to have no propensity toward altruism, community, or anything positive. It was always funny that her allegiance with heroism was entirely circumstantial and essentially transactional. My interpretation of Feral being removed from X-Force has always been that in the days of a comics code authority, it was hard to justify that character being labeled as one of the good guys. In the more morally relaxed world of modern X-Men comics, my first, second, and third thoughts are, where's Feral? What's she up to? Does she even want to do anything now that mutants are basically at peace? Well, I'll tell you, she was dead for a while. She's back now in Krakoa, and she's made a couple cameos. And Lee Williams and Teeny Howard just posted a picture of Shatterstar and Feral on their Instagram with little eye emojis. So maybe they're planning on doing something with those characters. What was your thought process about Feral? Because Wolfsbane exits and Feral, who's a somewhat similar character, but personality-wise very different, comes in. My thoughts on Feral was after Rob left, um, and I got, I assume the writing on the book solely, my thought was, please let me get this character off of this team and out, out of this book <laughs> as quickly as I possibly can. <laughs> And unfortunately, it took me 25 issues or more before I was able to do that. I don't even remember when I wrote her out. I couldn't stand the character. She definitely is one of those characters that just causes problems on purpose. Like, doesn't like anybody else on the team, isn't really a team player. It's just, I, I, yeah, yeah, I just tried. <laughs> if you notice, I ignored her tremendously until I finally did a two-part story, and that was as much to get her out of the book. I couldn't stand it. She's, I just thought she was unnecessary, repetitive, boring, uh, one-dimensional. There, there was nothing about her that, from Rob's Rob's initial design and, and his initial notes on her. There was nothing about her that ever really appealed to me. So, well, there you have it. That happens sometimes where you got a character in a book that you have no real affinity for whatsoever. I, I, I just I don't like to kill those kinds of characters off too, or or even write them out too quickly because I don't know if that's necessarily fair to the reader. Uh, so what I end up doing is just marginalizing them <laughs> and focus on the things I like. I tend to think writing them out rather than killing them is a good option because then if there's another writer who really responds to the character, maybe they can do something with them. And the, you know that's that's often I like that kind of storytelling a lot of the time because you never know when someone will gravitate towards something that you didn't give a shit about and turn it into something great. You know, that's sort of the nature of this shared world on some level. So I think that was smart. That leads into a question from Patrick Griffin, who asks, notwithstanding the Child's Play event and Danny's time with the MLF, did you ever have any interest in using more classic New Mutants characters in X-Force? And did you always intend that Danny was undercover with the MLF and working for S.H.I.E.L.D.? Or was that other writers? And if so, what, what was your plan for her? It was other writers that did whatever they ended up doing with Danny with the MLF. I had I had a long-term story plan in mind. Yeah, the Rainfire stuff that all kind of got Yeah, it all got screwed up and I'm not even going to I'm not even going to discuss what that might have been or would have been cuz I don't care. Whatever printed is what counts. Um not what my thoughts are. Fair enough. But I I had intended to do more with her, continue the road of her morally compromised situation inevitably my goal, my hope was to have gotten her and probably Tempo onto the main X-Force team. 
by the time that whole storyline ended. I was going to ask about Tempo because I have always really liked that character. I supported her in the X-Men vote. So did I. I voted for her. I saw that you did. Yeah. And that, I think, excited a lot of people because you said you'd had plans for her. I liked her for the X-Men vote because I think that you set up a sort of interesting moral quandary for her. And I think that she has a lot of potential to bring a radical perspective to the X-Men. And she is a character who hasn't been used a ton in the intervening years. So there's a lot you could do. What were your thoughts on her if you had been able to stay on the book did you have any specific I, plans i honestly couldn't even tell you I, I don't remember all i know is that i liked her i liked her name i liked her powers i liked i liked her diversity i liked i liked that she would bring something interesting mm -hmm. uh, into the group and it was x-force not x men that i had right I don't know what it would have been because I don't. I just don't remember because yeah. I hadn't gotten to that point. It's the kind of thing I, I'm. I got fired issue forty five, I guess forty. No, what was I? When was I fired? During Age of Apocalypse, forty three, forty four. The Rainfire and MLF storyline would have probably run another twelve to fourteen issues, not continuously, but right sporadically until it got to a conclusion. So I wouldn't have had to worry about the roster shakeup. Mm -hmm. until 60 or so you know so that was when i had in mind for tempo well i'll tell you i wish we'd gotten to read that because the way they printed the end of that story i think is is pretty I, awful so <laughs> I'm, I'm sure i'm sure it was really good okay well i love that for you and i'll i'll we'll just leave it at that Oh, this is a question that i think you probably also just similarly don't remember but multi-talented writes my question is regarding revanche I thought she showed us that Betsy could be kick-ass in either body. I was wondering what her real mutant powers were. It was mentioned that she was an empath, and then after Spiral intermingled them, she gained half of Betsy's telepathy. But now that she's come back, she has the Psylocke power set. Did you have a specific power set in mind for her? If I do, I certainly don't remember now. Yeah, I was like, it was 30 years ago. I can't imagine you super don't, remember. Don't know. David Power writes... Adam X is often called the most 90s character of the X-Men. Who are the other heralds of each decade by any standard you choose? That's a funny question. I think Longshot is about as 80s very, as very the character 80s. gets. Yeah. Wolverine is very 70s. I would say in the 60s, it's sort of Scott and Jean. I mean, they are kind of that moment, that period. It's, it's almost a romance comic in the Roy Thomas yes. years. Tormented, but Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts nonetheless. Yeah. In the aughts, I think actually it's Pixie because Fraction really pushed that character and you have that, she's like kind of anime inspired. It feels like a lot of things that were happening in that period. And uh, for the tens, I don't know, hard to say. That was, I don't know, that era of the X-Men's not my favorite. <laughs> I don't know. And now we'll have to find out. But I think that the fact that Adam X does have such a 90s aesthetic is why it's funny to bring him back now because that aesthetic has come back into vogue to some extent. So it's interesting to transpose that character who felt a little dated in the aunts to a time when a lot of characters sort of look like him now, right? So I think it's a fun moment to bring him back. And then the last question is about Juggernaut, your recent title. Ryan Almond writes, Hello, Connor and Mr. Nicieza. I'm so excited about this episode since Mr. Nicieza wrote some of my favorite stories in the 90s. But I'd like to both gush and ask about something far more recent. I loved the Juggernaut series Mr. Nicieza wrote earlier this year. I would have loved to spend more time with Cell and Kane and seeing Kane back and in my favorite characterization of him, a divorced dad doing his best. 
along with the improved relationship between him and Charles and Tom, as complex as they are. But most of all, it being a story where he looks to understand his own guilt and worry about if he'll be forever defined by his past. What inspired you to do this take on Kane Marco? Outside of the Austin run, a bit of Thunderbolts, and a little bit of the pre-House of X Uncanny, very few people seem interested in a version of Kane that isn't just a merc looking for a payout. I found a lot of what you did with him so good, like pushing the guilt he feels onto the Hulk. That's it from me. Thank you very much for so many of the stories from my childhood that I read until they fell apart. Chuck Marsh. What inspired that mini, and what are your juggernaut thoughts now that it's over? I think that what I was able to do is actually just simply pretty much pick up from where I left Juggernaut off the last time I wrote him, <laughs> which was an X-Men Forever limited series. Yeah, with Prosh. Yeah, Kane's entire arc in that miniseries was realizing what a complete waste his life had been. Mm-hmm. And he was going to become a bounty hunter for the super, you know, human registration, you know, Val Cooper's group and all that yeah. stuff. Back then. And as with all things X, it just frittered away and disappeared. But I spent six issues building him to that. And if you look at how I wrote Kane in that series, it was pretty much how... I've written Kane before. I've only gotten to write him a few times, but I don't see him as a psychopathic, thunderous destruction machine. I see him as a, a very, very sad, insecure guy who is never able to live up to the examples of others in his life. So he takes the easy way out mm-hmm. time and time again. And, and because he's so powerful, he's able to get away with that doesn't make him this happy person right so i wanted to use krakoa and the status quo of krakoa and you got to take into account because of the pandemic and the, and the delay in the release of the book i started writing this series in september of 2019 mm-hmm. i finished the fifth issue in january of 20 of 2020 okay so uh, i was done with my scripts long before the first issue even came out on the stands Right. So when I was writing it, humans weren't going to be allowed on Krakoa right. at that time. And Kane wasn't going to be allowed on Krakoa. So I'm writing a character who can't be with the only group he thinks would be willing to take him. And I think that that still works. What we've seen in the time since is that it's a little bit like immigration in the real world in America. Like the only humans we've seen living on Krakoa up to this point are spouses of mutants or children of mutants who are not mutants themselves. So like Brian Braddock is Megan's husband, so he can come. North Star's husband, characters like that. So I think that Kane would be in an awkward situation. And until he and Black Tom finally make it official... Yeah. To get him his Krakoan green card. Well, they, um, I, Jordan, Jordan White, the editor. Love Jordan. He did this podcast. He's wonderful. Jordan told me that he can go on Krakoa now. Good. Well, I love that because I want him there. And, and if I do anything else with Juggernaut, chances are that he will get to set foot on Krakoa. Great. So, so we'll see. Well, in the vein of the Richter and Shatterstar question, you know, you didn't create these characters, but how do you feel about Juggernaut and Black Tom? My father has said to me that he always thought as a kid reading it in the 70s that they were gay and that it just wasn't said on the page. I thought that they were a couple from the second that Chris introduced Black Tom. Same. Okay, well, I'm glad we're on the same page. I was probably, was probably around 14 at the time. Yeah. And, and, and I thought that the two of them were a couple. And I think 
I think they should be a couple. I just don't know how Marvel right. would think about that right now, one way or the other. I don't. Well, you know. I would love if you got an opportunity to write that. I think that would be amazing because I think you have a lot of love for both of those characters and particularly for Juggernaut. I got to be honest, I wouldn't mind doing it. But the main reason is it would make up for my not having been the one who wrote North Star's coming out issue because <laughs> I quit. I quit Alpha Flight before I got to do that, even though I was planning for it. I think your issue might have been a little more sensitive, so I wish I had read that one. Connor, you would have, <laughs> you you might have loved it because North Star's coming out and Alpha Flight was going to be nothing more than him coming home, and his partner is there making dinner. Perfect. And we realize it's a supporting character. We just introduced six issues ago. He works for the Canadian government as a liaison to Alpha Flight. His name was Kerry Patrick. He was introduced in the comics and he just comes home and he kisses his, his partner on the cheek and says, what's for dinner? And that was it. Right. That was the coming out. Because, yeah, because the other characters should know already. That's the exactly. thing. You yeah. know, I was just talking about this last week with Stephanie Burt about Kate Pride because Claremont wrote Kate Pride as bisexual from the moment she's introduced as Kitty. And so the tricky thing now is if they're allowed to do it, if they've gotten the approval from on high or whatever, does everyone know that already? Or does she have to go through the process of telling everyone? Or like, were she and Rachel actually dating at one point? And we'll just find that out. That's how I'd like to do it. But I know there are some people who really want to see it all play out. What I really want to see is Kitty phasing through a man and a woman. And she's like this. And she goes, I am bi. <laughs> That's what I really want iconic, to see. iconic North Star panel. Yeah, I think every character who comes out in a Marvel comic should be coming out like this. Yeah, with a punching fist. I am, I am fill in the blank. Yeah, I exactly, <laughs> exactly. I love that for them. I think that yeah. Well, maybe that's your next Juggernaut mini is him punching through be, the wall. Juggernaut going, just crashes through a building. And Black Tom is just like finally. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. What I'd love to talk about now as we start to wrap is just anything you want to talk about that you're excited about. I know you have a novel coming up. Obviously, X-Men Legends 2 is coming. So whatever you want to talk about, feel free to take it away. Well, X, uh, X-Men Legends 2 comes out in two weeks, I guess. Wraps up a story, 25 years in the wrapping. And, and I hope readers enjoy it. I had a lot of fun getting to do it. I am working on something for Marvel right now, but I can't announce it yet. Always the way but it features characters I've written before, which considering how many I've written. Yeah, I was like, that doesn't really narrow it down. <laughs> it doesn't really narrow it down. I'll just say it would be fun to see you do something with the new warriors now, because they're all... Uh, I, I think that ship is sailed. Oh. <laughs> I think that ship is sailed. They, they've asked 7,000 writers other than me to write it over the last <laughs> 25 years. So maybe, maybe I, I think maybe I should just take the hint. I'm just still pulling for Silhouette to make a big comeback. I, I think you. she's great. I know. I know. My first novel comes out June 22nd from Putnam. Great House. A division of Penguin Random House. The book is called Suburban Dicks. It is a sarcastic mystery uh, set in the suburbs of New Jersey, basically the area I live. It's a book idea I've had for eh, almost as long as Adam X, quite frankly. Uh, I've, had the, <laughs> I've had the book idea since 1994 and... It only took me 23 years to get the confidence to try to write it. And then once I wrote it, people who read it liked it and an agent wanted to represent it. And he got five publishers who wanted to buy it. 
pretty crazy roller coaster. Let me tell you, people, that's not that common. <laughs> a big auction like that. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not that common. Speaking as a lit agent, that's what you want. It's not always what you get. I started writing it at the end of 2017. I told my wife that if I'm lucky, I can sell it to a mystery paperback mm-hmm. publisher for 5000 or $10,000. No, Putnam's a great house. And she goes, oh, okay. And I was like, oh, but it is something I felt I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And when it turned into a very good lucrative deal, it, was, it turned into a two book deal. Fantastic. Good for you. This morning, I delivered the manuscript to the second book to my editor. Mazel tov, you're ahead of the game. It is also a suburban Dick's mystery. It's basically the story of a should-have-been FBI profiler who is 33 years old and pregnant with her fifth kid Mm. and a 29-year-old former Pulitzer Prize winner while he was in college for journalism (laughs) who is now working for a weekly suburban newspaper. And the two of them knew each other when they were younger because she used to date his older brother. Gotcha. And there is a murder of a gas station attendant in a small New Jersey town that has undergone a lot of cultural change over the last 20 years. A lot of white flight out and a lot of Asian flow in. And she suspects that the murder of this gas station attendant is not robbery. It is to cover up an old crime and starts to doggedly find out what that old crime was. Interesting. It speaks to our fear of suburban change and, and, and fear of cultural change in the areas where we live. And it's basically set in the area I live in and have been for the last 30 years. So I've seen all of it happening in real life. Well, I will pre-order that because here's the thing, people, if you're listening, pre-orders are very important for trade publishing for novels. Because that first week of sales is a sales track that is important to a lot of suits that you have to impress. No offense to the suits if you're listening. I love you dearly, obviously. We'll talk soon. But pre-orders count for first week sales. So if you love an author, the best thing you can do for them is pre-order their novels. So I will do that. And everyone listening should do that if you are a Fabian Nicieza fan. I appreciate it. You can pre-order now. That's all super exciting. I will say it is fun to see you back in, you know, not that you left ever really, but it's nice. it's been nice to see you back with some of these X characters in particular because you were one of the really big architects of the line when I was young. And it's always fun to see people come back to the characters that they helped to shape, you know? So I'd love to see more of that. I hope you come back for another Arc of Legends. I'm sure you have some other stories you'd love to tell. I would love to. It it really depends on whether I do other X-related stuff. Well, that would be exciting, too. We'll All see right. what happens. All right. We'll see what happens down the road. <laughs> All right. Well, if you write the Black Tom and Juggernaut wedding, I won't sue, because I'm sure you already okay. came up with it in your head. So <laughs> why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you around the web or on social media or any of that, if you care to? You can follow me. Easiest, best way to do it is just follow me on Twitter at Fabian Nisiesa. Oh, see, I've been saying it wrong for two hours. <laughs> Nisiesa. Did I get it closer that time? Was that any better? You got much. Good. Okay. Not, not only did you get it right, but you got it with a flourish. <laughs> I'm going to try. <laughs> Open DMs, which is how we're here on the podcast. And that's really the quickest, easiest way. I'm on Facebook too, but I have a thousand person waiting list on my friends list. Fair enough. I'm on Instagram, but I don't go on Instagram very much. 
much. So Twitter and Facebook are the two best ways to get a hold of me. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus transcripts as I get them up at Cerebrocast.com, the official landing page for the podcast, where you can also find a link to the Discord server and join the conversation if you like. Just please don't bring any bad vibes. It's a pretty chill place at the moment, and I like it that way. I peek in there when I can, but it's been really exciting to see you all getting to know each other. Thank you so much for being my guest. This was a real pleasure. My pleasure, Connor. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to getting this episode out there, and I am looking forward to seeing how Adam X's story concludes. For now. I hope everyone enjoys it. Like I said on Twitter, it's meant to be a cup of hot chocolate on a warm winter day. It is not meant to revolutionize cuisine. <laughs> you can write into Cerebro with your comments, questions, and feedback at cerebrocast at gmail.com. I appreciate you guys so much. This podcast has kept me sane through a really weird year, and it's been so much fun to talk to all of you. So until next time, everybody, thank you for listening, and bye. Take care, everyone. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is... X-Men.